Welcome to Accelerate Your Wealth, a podcast by Rebecca Robertson, founder and director of Evolution Financial Planning. This season, we'll be covering all things wealth, from owning it to maximizing it. For further information, or if you'd like help accelerating your wealth directly, please do contact us. Head over to our website, www.rebeccarobertsonevo.co.uk. So today I'm going to be joined by Sasha El Kudri, who is a portfolio fund manager for a global equities team at BMO, where she joined the firm in 2009. Sasha graduated with an MSc in finance with distinction from City University from Bayes Business School in 2009 and has a BA in economics with a minor in business administration from American University of Beirut in 2017. Sasha is a CFA chart holder, which is a chartered financial analyst. BMO, the firm that she works for, are an amazing asset management, a global asset management firm that focus is simple to help clients meet their investment goals while also building a more sustainable, secure future for us all. Let's give her a warm welcome. So welcome, Sasha. Thanks for joining me today. Hi. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. No, no problem. Um, so what got you into economics and studying so many BAs and um, MSCs? Like what, what got you get, getting into all of that? Um, I was quite a studious, studious young person. I uh, just loved, you know, going to uni and studying and um, basically was really good at maths and just wanted to study something that I felt um, I would be passionate about and that started with economics back in Beirut just understanding you know how the world works um, I guess having gone through it the uh, economics in itself and the way it's interpreted uh, on the macro side and to a certain extent on the micro side there is no further explanation to reality because uh, you know people are very irrational and the models uh, certainly don't map out how people behave um, and so I decided to go uh, and further my studies and do a master's here in London in finance and, and something that was a bit more tangible. Um, I always knew that I wanted to end up working in investments. I wanted... You did? You knew um, that from the beginning or only when you started studying? Um, I think only when I started studying, just getting that exposure to the different, you know, teachers and professors and talking to peers um, that was the area that interested me the most because you have direct contact with companies that are in the real world, employing real people, have direct activities that, you know, impact uh, our economies and our world. Um, and so that that's kind of the, the interaction and the dynamic that I kind of craved. Um, and, and, you know, being, being an investor, uh, investing almost exclusively in sustainable and ethical and responsible mandates, that is just the cherry on the top because I've, I've always wanted to have a positive impact with my life, but also, you know, ideally with my work and, and having the chance to do that was, you know, just great. Amazing. So talk to me about what a normal day looks like for you when it comes to your job as a portfolio manager. Well, there's a lot of research involved. Um, so the way that we invest, and I think, you know, even taking a step back from work as a personal investor, um, I think it's really important to understand what you're investing in. Um, and so we select 
stocks or companies from the bottom up. Uh, we do a lot of work before investing in them. Um, we meet management teams. Uh, we have discussions uh, with you know, industry participants as well. Um, and we conduct financial analysis, uh, of course. Um, and then once we make that decision to buy and hold, uh, there is a lot of work that also goes into uh, you know, making sure that the investment thesis is still on track, whether things have changed. Um, and that involves a lot of work, you know, on our side, but also a lot of collaboration with our responsible investment team, which is a, a resource that we've had in-house for a long, long time, I think over 20 years within yeah, our company. I mean, BMO are one of, one of the first, I would say, in terms of ethical investing, and they've got a massive, massive track record. Obviously, your funds renamed and changed all, all the time um but you know you, you've had that foot in the door so i imagine that team is a great resource it is an excellent resource they have just got that depth of knowledge by vertical so let's say you know labor issues human rights um in the supply chain you know going really in depth by not only sector but also geography and so that's a really invaluable resource to tap into when you're looking into, for example, a company that um, uh, makes the cathode material for batteries that are used in electric vehicles. You know, a big part of the risk and the value chain here is the actual material that goes into the battery, like cobalt. Cobalt is principally sourced out of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and right. there are a lot of social costs, um, particularly with uh, what they call artisanal mining. Uh, so you get issues like, um, you know, human rights abuse, but also child labor. Um, and so this is where our responsible investment colleagues come into the fore and really help us address these issues with the companies that we're Amazing. investing in. So would you question the, the company over the, uh, those kind of matters to see how they're avoiding it or reducing it um, or managing it? I think it is our duty to. This is what active investing is all about. And, um, you know, to your first question, what do we do on a daily basis? It's having these kinds of conversations with our companies where um, not only are we, you know, asking them what they are doing, but we're also trying to get them to improve their processes all the time. Mm. Um, you know, I think even the best in class companies can always do more to improve their impact on the environment, but also society, whether it's their own employees or through, through you know, their, their products and services. So the, there's a big question out there um, with regards to passive and active management and I feel personally as a financial advisor when it comes to ethical investing that it's such a forever changing environment mm. but if you have a passive fund how can it really maneuver the complexity of what's ethical and what's not which is changing the regulations changing all the time the governance is changing all the time how can you how can you keep on top of that now, I don't know whether with BMO do have passive or I know they do obviously active, um, but in the general public, um, people that are looking to initially invest, but certainly if they're business owners, mm. um, they're, they sort of step into a realm of non-regulated or DIY advice. And you can't mm. even use the word advice, but um, the, we're talking about an unregulated realm, which under the FCA, people... If, can say and do what they want and advise, like suggest things 
and the general consensus is have something that's cheap cheerful and tracks the markets because over a 20 30 year time it will do the same as what an actively managed portfolio now i can't advise people with which way one way to go or the other but i will say that when it comes to ethic, ethical funds, that it's, it is much that much more complex. And when I do research on terms of, okay, client isn't worried if it's passive or active, let's see who's had the best performance over the last four or five years. Like literally every time it's not a passive fund that comes up because there is mm-hmm. so much going on in the markets mm-hmm. over the last few years. And I don't really foresee that changing in ethical or standards for the next three or four years, if I'm honest. But from your perspective, what, how do you view that subject with the active versus passive? And can, we, can you explain to sort of normal everyday folk that maybe haven't invested before what an active fund manager would do over a passive fund where there's not necessarily any adjustments being made? And if there is, then maybe yearly. Absolutely. So maybe I'll start with your latter question and then go into you know, why I think, I mean, obviously I will be biased as an active manager, but what are probably the shortfalls um, of passive, uh, especially when it comes to responsible, you know, ethical or, or sustainable investing? Um, so look, active investors, uh, if you're doing active investing properly, you will be highly differentiated from the benchmark or what we call the market. Um, a passive fund will have north of 100, 200 names uh, in the funds. Um, some of the funds that we run are highly concentrated. That means 30 to 50 stocks, and that's at the top end. So we really understand what we're invested in. We understand not only the risks, but we understand the opportunities. We're also very long-term shareholders, and that goes hand in hand with our engagement approach, which I just talked about. How do you have a conversation with a company when, you know, in three months' time, you'll be divested? That can't work. In order to have that longevity of relationship and drive results, you need to be a long-term shareholder. And this has proven to drive returns as well. So... First of all, I think to that, um, you know, that that uh, first pushback that I come across quite a lot, which is, uh, you know, you need to forego some of the returns uh, in order to invest ethic- ethically or responsibly. Um, I completely disagree with that. Um, and and the, the proof is in the pudding. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you rightly said, a lot, a lot of the outperformance has been driven by that part of the market. Um, and again, it's not just because you're understanding where your risks are coming from, but you're also investing in that area of the market where the opportunities are rife uh, and where most of the disruption is happening. Now, one of the shortfalls of passive investing is data. There is a lot of data out there when it comes to environmental, social, and governance factors. And a lot of that data is imperfect. um, And we come across it all the time. Um, so when you do the deep dive on a company, uh, when you are, you know, when, you know, when you really understand what you're investing in, um, some of the MSCI ESG scores or other third-party providers have a lot of stop, shortfalls. Stop you there. Would you like to explain those two um, acronyms that you've just used? So MSCI and ESG. They probably would only ESG, but I'll, I'll see that you explain if that's okay. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, MSCI is just a, a company, uh, a third party provider of data of which uh, they provide ESG, which is environmental, social and governance data. And that comes in uh, in the form of a score, uh, which has a they provide they provide quite a bit of granularity. But because mm -hmm. the market is so broad, there is no way that they can cover the entire market in the depth no. that is required to have that accuracy in the data. Yeah, um, and, and again, that's deem deemable, right? Because you can have Microsoft deemed on there quite highly and Amazon relatively highly, but they're not scoring in certain areas. So it does, for me, it's deciding, well, what's that fund manager deeming as ethical? Because you might have exactly. a B or an A or an A plus and you, each investment manager would deem it slightly differently, right? And the point that you raised by citing those two, uh, you know, very, very large companies, Microsoft and Amazon, they have the resources to address and tick the boxes that MSCI requires, whereas, um, you know, smaller companies that are stretched, um, that probably don't have the resources to do so, often get overlooked uh, by, by third party providers like MSCI and therefore mm. get, um, they, they get scored down now, because of yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Sure. So I interrupted you. So um, apologies for that. I just thought it was really important to uh, explain no, those, those two pieces. So you mentioned MSCI. Would you like to continue? Can you remember where you picked? Did I interrupt you too much? Can you carry on? Um, I, I think I made my point. It was just about, you know, the, the passive versus active um, argument. I, I think it's mostly you know, it's mostly you want to understand what you're invested in and you want to make sure that, well, I personally want to make sure that what I'm invested in aligns with my values. Mm -hmm. um, and there have been a lot of examples, um, you know, in, in recent years from very big ETF providers, so exchange traded mm. funds, which are funds that track the market. Um, and they are funds that are supposedly, you know, supposed to be ESG, but they, they did have some data errors, which resulted in them investing. I can't remember what the particular example was, but, you know, they, they in reality, were not. Um, so, so you get a lot of these, um, these kind of, uh, uh, of, of examples. The other thing that I would say is, you know, when you, if you don't have the capacity, not a lot of us have the capacity to do it ourselves. Obviously, this is my day job. I spend my entire time looking at companies, researching companies and talking to companies. Um, if you don't have the time or resource or capacity to do that, what I would look out for is that the fund manager that you're invested in is as transparent as possible. Yeah. Uh, because again, to that, uh, you know, that idea of not knowing what you're invested in, I think mm -hmm. if you're it, it, you, if you're kind of invested the way that you say you're invested, you have nothing to hide and therefore yeah. you should be sharing as much information with your clients as possible so that would be one of the things that i would recommend people to look, look at, out yeah. for and we, and we hear a lot about greenwashing and anyone that's really into ethical anything <laughs> you know like recycling etc you start to hear this sort of term of the terminology um bashed about um called greenwashing and in the ethical investing sense um, just to explain, that's exactly what Sasha's just mentioning, where they sort of feel like they've ticked a box. But then when you start looking at the per exposure percentages to certain areas, you start to see, I mean, you have a, a certain amount of threshold of, of 
acceptance and I generally find clients will accept a certain amount, maybe 5% minor, like in certain areas, because they accept that, you know, animal testing to get cancer treatment and age treatment, there's a certain amount of testing that's required. Um, but if you're talking about having an overexposed area in, for example, Japan, then it means that actually your animal testing increases because they test for household products and makeup, meaning your actual exposure has the potential of 12 or 15% then so it's, it, this is why there's a lot of gray and it's, it's all like how long's a piece of string and it's very important to be very clear on what you do and you don't want which is where someone like me comes in not to sort of put a pitch in but that's really where my job is to find out what the client's ethical requirements are find out exactly what is deemed as you know a hard no and a, okay well, I could sort of accept that and then figuring out the best company to go to in terms of what their offering is, because each investment firm have a very different offering as to what they deem as uh, acceptable or not. And it, it's, it's a minefield. And I don't know about you, where do you see ethical investing going? Because it's a massive growing market. I've been, I've been in it for four years. So before it became more popular, before providers mm. were talking about it, and uh -huh. every event that you go to, you would never have the ethical investing was just not even spoken about. Uh -huh. Now, every event you go to, it's a big, big discussion. Um, but I see it becoming more complicated and but I don't foresee it becoming normal as in it's a normal part of a conversation, normal that every fund, fund manager, every firm has an ethical portfolio. But I don't foresee that ethical investing will become a standard in all portfolios or all investments even if we mm -hmm. take oil as an example we're never going to eradicate all oil being used in terms of fossil fuels forever there will be an element of you know that being used so mm -hmm. I don't I, I don't know what do you think do you think that all funds will become ethical or do you think there will always be a like a, a, a diversion or not the diversion a, a difference between standard and ethical so look again, I think, you know, our industry is really, and we've already demonstrated this, we're responsible for so much jargon and acronym and, and you know, ESG, ethical, responsible, sustainable. Um, it is a minefield. It is a minefield. Mm. And to, to the outsider, it can look extremely complex. Um, it is moving quite fast. Mm. I would say today, it would be unacceptable for an investor not to integrate environmental, social and governance factors into their consideration, into their research from a risk perspective. And yeah. I think that starting point has become a lot more prevalent. And I think, frankly, it has to be because yeah. it is an inherent part of the risk of investing. So again, to your example of oil and gas, you know, the oil and gas sector, we all know what challenges they're facing. Regulation is a massive headwind. Um, it would be frankly irresponsible for an investor not to consider the, the, the stranded assets um, and, and what that could potentially destroy in terms of value mm. when you're investing. Yeah. However, anything that's beyond that integration of ESG factors um, is a fast moving uh, and very dynamic environment. Uh, frankly, at BMO, we don't talk about ethical investing anymore to 
to us the even the word ethical has uh, kind of this connotation of um, just screening out sin stocks. Yeah. So it's that kind of old school of investing where you're literally screening the universe for tobacco, um, weapons, uh, um, oil, oil and gas stocks, and you're investing into the rest of, yes, of yeah, the universe. Process. It's, an ex- it's primarily an exclusionary, yeah, it's yeah. an exclusionary kind of strategy. Whereas to us, responsible, sustainable, um, and to a certain extent, impact investing has to do more with, uh, you know, kind of shifting your perspective a little bit and looking at the upside that all of the sustainability challenges can create and and all of the opportunities that it can unlock. So again, going back to that um, electric vehicle example, regulation here has been a massive tailwind and we've seen the automotive industry being absolutely annihilated mm. um you know old uh, behemoths have been completely disrupted they've had to completely upend their own business models destroy their cash cows mm. in order to um to conform to the new world yeah. Yeah. where an internal combustion engine won't exist in a few years yeah, and it exactly. has and it has allowed space for the teslas um of this world the new mm. entrance to come yeah. in and and disrupt an entire industry it's, um, it's so, crazy it's, it feels like it's 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 happened very slowly hasn't it hasn't it? It, it it's it's a gradual progression right and it'd be interesting in 10 or 20 years time what what else has been a gradual progression that if we look back in 20 30 years ago like, wow look how and you're saying like you say it's very very fast paced and and i'd like to bring you back to this this thing that you mentioned about risk so before we started recording we talked about risk and we talked about women and women about women investing and risk is a real concern and what mm. i love is that you've brought up how if you can't, if you're not investing ethically Mm-hmm. you're taking a risk in itself so you might be an investor and you've got you've not sort of taken into consideration this moving fast-paced environment that we're in no one's going to turn around and say it from an economic perspective everyone should stop investing in fossil fuels guys because like it's just not the future that no one's going to say that because we would have a massive crashing economy it will cause a huge amount of unemployment like that's a whole subject on its own right no one's going to turn around and say that however as individual investors we need to be considering okay what do we want how do we want our future to look like what do we want those longer term decisions it's considering not necessarily excluding the fossil fuels but looking at okay what else does the future look like and obviously you're talking about you know cars but what else could that look like? So I think that's really interesting, your point around risk and ethical investing. So as put, put portfolio managers, obviously you have different funds with different risks. So you're probably in a, in a, in a simple term for everybody. We would, you'd have a cautious, balance, growth, adventurous, just to keep it nice and simple, right? What would you deem as an ethical company that is more, and obviously we can't go into too many specifics for regulation purposes, but what would you class as a higher risk kind of company compared to a more cautious company when it comes to, or is it purely around where they're invested geographically or the industry? So if I understand your question correctly, when you're asking me about 
a, a riskier company, you mean a company that is that is more forward looking or yeah. further along in its in its ESG journey? Yeah, because obviously from an asset class, you would have more gilts and bonds and such like in a more cautious fund. But yeah. in a in regards to um, a more adventurous fund, you'd have possibly other companies that you wouldn't have considered. They might be in other geographical mm. areas but some fund managers would choose certain industries or certain companies that for example like you've just mentioned they're more forward-facing you would yes. have a more cautious fund that's a really interesting way of looking at it actually I had, I'd never considered it that way because look the way that we look at the world is that when you when you kind of take a step back and and especially with what's happened in the last 18 months since COVID hit we're starting to see kind of a step change in the pace of disruption in the world. Um, and, you know, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that we can't um, afford to ignore any of these risks, mm. uh, whether, you know, whether we're uh, investors, but also as consumers, as individuals and corporates can't afford mm. to ignore these risks any longer. Uh, and make no mistake, COVID was a huge ESG risk um, and it's impacted every facet of our lives. Uh, again, I talked about electric vehicles, that's impacting every facet of our life. I'm going to talk about um, something that touches all of us, and that's the global food system. Mm. The global food system is incredibly unsustainable, whether you look at it from a production point of view, you know, the agricultural practices in place today, modern agriculture is in a state of absolute crisis uh, through to, you know, distribution, 30% of food is wasted. Uh, and that a big part of that is through bad um, kind of distribution, not having the right uh, infrastructure. And then to consumption, I mean, obesity is a ticking time bomb. Our nutrition is... Um, very, very poor. Um, mm, and that is contributing yeah. to, to, you know, a, 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 basically governments looking at long term liabilities with horror because of what obesity and growing rates of okay. obesity entail. Yeah. And so when you look at that big picture, you're it's like a slow train, it's coming. I, th I think it's, you know, gaining momentum because regulation mm. is is behind it. Um, so a lot of the regulation that's come out of um, Europe in the last 12 months, the EU Farm to Fork uh, initiative, you know, that's aimed literally at addressing all of these issues in the supply chain. But also mm. from uh, COP26, which was in Glasgow earlier this month, um, you know, uh, all of the issues such as um, the one pertaining to methane emission, you know, it's oil and gas, but it's also agriculture. Oh, massively. So, I'm vegetarian. So trying to explain to people that actually it's nothing like half our problem is not anything to do with cars and fossil fuels. It's actually cows farting. And <laughs> like exactly. people, like, people don't want to hear it, though. Right. That people don't want to hear it. I've got a group of friends from the, the school and you know, my second child, school mom. Um, first year of, uh, of primary school they're all going to a state joint and I'm vegetarian and I'm going I'm really sorry I can't sit there and watch you eat dripping red meat I have to do it very occasionally with my husband um, and he eats red meat I've never really ate red meat all my life 
I, I can't sit there and watch everyone um and um mm. and but it's a bit like smoking I, I tried to explain this to my husband I said imagine yes. you need to smoke and imagine you went into a restaurant where everybody smoked and everyone agreed it was okay to smoke and you had to sit there and breathe in all the smoke fumes yes and you know years ago we would have think that was really strange that, that anyone would not be smoking indoors and now it's normal you know we've talked about this society change now it's normal people aren't allowed to smoke indoors near children in cars it's illegal right I, I I can't you're talking about this sort of future risk and this future element and this issue with me and that food chain I completely agree with you and I wonder this might be a little bit far stretched and people that love red meat won't want to hear this but I wonder if it will become so expensive for farmers to keep cows, there'd be such a tax around it, it will become a very elite luxury item like a Gucci mm. handbag or something that you mm -hmm. only have in certain restaurants that are licensed to sell it because it's that, that you know, unsustainable, basically. Because yeah. It's not a sustainable system. I mean, you'll be surprised to know, and a, and a fun fact, that 95% of the methane that's produced by cows is actually belched and not farted. Uh, so that's just a fun fact for you. Thank just you because for you correcting me. That's what your animal um, department's for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but look, that's a really good point. And um, again, you know, every stakeholder is mobilizing. It's not just about government and regulation individuals are starting to put their money where their mouth is and mm. individuals and consumers are shunning brands that are not embracing sustainability mm. um, the first example that we see is packaging uh, you know companies that are not embracing sustainable packaging are suffering because consumers are turning their back on, backs on them yeah and similar to food uh, you know a lot of the studies that uh, companies, food companies that we own share with us uh, basically say that consumers are willing to pay more for sustainable, um, yeah. sustainable pr produce. Yeah. And so I think, look, your point is very well made. Uh, cows actually contribute more to greenhouse gas emissions than cars. Yeah. And this is a pocket that is only now just starting to come under scrutiny by regulation. I think, uh, as you rightly said, individuals are starting to realize that what their behavior or what their consumption patterns do make a real difference on the world. Mm -hmm. And again, to that idea of change and forward looking to us, this is catalyzing some of the biggest mega trends and disruptive trends that we're gonna see for the next decade. People realize that the next decade is crucial yeah. we're running out of time governments are mobilizing individuals are mobilizing corporates are mobilizing and to us this is the future this is where we want to be invested and that's what responsible and sustainable investing to us is all about love it and i feel like i should leave it there because that was like such a powerful statement you just made and i completely agree with you Sasha you've been amazing thank you so much for joining me today I've loved listening to you and I feel like I could listen to you all day talk about this stuff and um, so maybe you can come back another time and have a chat with us absolutely I'd love so, that thank you so much for joining us again I've really enjoyed it and um you can go and check out BMO go and give them a google just google BMO they're obviously a retail investment firm um and well that's it over and out for today thank you Sasha thanks Rebecca
If you wanted to learn more about ethical investing, check out my free guide on evolutionfinancialplanning.co.uk slash ethical hyphen investment, or go and check out rebeccarobertson.co.uk for a webinar around the subject, which will talk all about how to start investing ethically. Thank you for joining us today. And do go and give us a share or like on the podcast channel that you're on or go and check me out on Instagram, LinkedIn or Facebook, whatever takes your fancy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Accelerate Your Wealth. If you'd like to take the steps to accelerate your wealth further, perhaps owning it more or maximizing it to its full potential, please do head over to our free Facebook group, The Money Mastery Collective, where we post regular updates on tips to maximize your wealth and also support you along the way. We'd love to see you there.